Hey everyone, back again. We're going to continue on with Halberstam's in a queer time and place, starting from chapter three. Uh, we're going to cover chapters three and chapter four here. And uh, yeah, if you're new here, go check out part one. I'm David. I explain philosophical concepts and ideas and ways to make them accessible to you. So, you know the spiel, go listen to part one and all the other episodes I already have up. And uh, yeah, let's just jump into this with chapter three, chapter three. And this is picking up on the Brandon Tina story and the film Boys Don't Cry, really talking about Brandon Tina's murder. So when Brandon is collectively remembered, Halberstam asks what or who is being remembered, even if, if this person was unmemorable in life, <laughs> which is, I was, I wrote in my notes, I was like, ouch, like, that was rude. But anyways, even if this person might otherwise, no one had given this person a second look. I don't really know what Halberstam is saying. But in any case, in any case, uh, why this much attention to Brandon? And we aren't going to talk here only about Brandon. We're going to also talk about the jazz musician named um, Billy Tipton. Just FYI. So archives, and it's important to have a grasp of what an archive is. Like I kind of presented it in the last part but for more on this like there is entire scholarship on the study of archives themselves like and Svekovich an archive Svekovich is an archive of feelings uh which is a great book that looks at these um the way in which archives work for queer communities to collect experiences and to craft help craft that community and give it like a shape and a, and a face that is always being added to and always mutating and always developing. Additionally, Lauren Berlant, like cruel optimism, I think can very be read, can be read as a queer archive. So archives can be invested with progressive potential. They they hold the potential to reflect the experiences of otherwise oppressed communities. But archives can also be co-opted. They can be taken over and used for oppressive purposes. So this chapter will look at the way that Brandon and other trans people have been molded in memory in these archives or in some archives in order to normalize heterosexual order or the heterosexual order, which might seem totally strange, like how if we're collecting the experiences and identities of queer people, how does this secretly uphold a heterosexual order? So that's, we're essentially going to, just to give you a peek as to how Halberstam does this, Halberstam identifies that even though their identities are revealed, often those identities are then cast as an aberration, as being in need of medical care and being in proximity to a normal way of living life, which um, is, of course, just a way to maintain a status quo. So beyond Brandon Tina, like I mentioned, we're going to talk about Billy Tipton, who is a famous jazz musician who lived uh, from 1914 to 1989 and who many didn't know was uh, a trans man. And it's 1989, but in the book, Halberstam repeatedly writes it as 91, I believe. I didn't even write because I knew it was wrong. Uh but yeah, it was off by a couple of years. I don't know if this was like an editor's issue or something, but there was something off with the dates in the book, but it's 1989. 
So in both of these cases, after their deaths, the act of rem remembering them was tainted by the prominent desire to excavate their lives and find the truth of their identities. So they weren't just who they were as they identified themselves. When it was revealed that they were trans, then there was an entire operation put in place to like understand the truth of their identity. Like they were trans, but was their trans identity just because they uh, were secretly gay and they didn't know how to express that? Were they secretly just like um, ashamed of their bodies, like to make sense of it? And all of these are efforts to remove the reality of trans identities and to say that they are just like aberrations. They are deviants. They are not real in themselves, which simply upholds a status quo. And we're going to get into more of this. But in these cases as well, these people are depicted as being deceptive, dishonest, as being frauds in their lives, of duping people. So in the ter derogatory term that's used, like to refer to passing trans people as traps, like you don't know, and then people uh, will you know, engage with them sexually and then realize, and then they're, they go into a rage. Uh, and in many cases, actually murder, uh, men will murder trans women uh, because they their masculinity has been called into question, at least to them, to the extent that they're willing to murder someone which is a very, it's a horrifying uh, reality that, that has affected way too many trans people. Now, these efforts to understand trans people in their deaths and to understand their lives after they've died, these efforts supersede the simple acknowledgement and respect of who they were when, as they identified themselves. Like, why not just look at Brandon as a man and that be the end of it? No, there's this it's like this obsession with uh, figuring out people in their proximity to heteronormativity. And if they deviate from it, from being cisgender, where your gender identity confirms to what you were assigned at birth, being cis and hetero, if you do not comply with the, both of those things, they're going to try to rationalize you and make sense of you and fit you back in the mold somehow as either a deviant who's in need of correcting and therefore being separate from the norm or secretly being part of the norm but doesn't you just didn't know how to get there and additionally all of these explanations fail to acknowledge the ways that being trans is much more about uh, is way more than about your anyone's individual identity it's also about how people form relations between one another how they form community and how they form bonds like, it's way more than just sexual desire or self-presentation. Like, it's so much more than that. So recounting Jay Prosser's critique of Judith Butler, uh, so Jay Prosser says that Judith Butler's characterization of trans people as automatically transgressive is problematic. So in Judith Butler's text, Gender Trouble, they very much do this. Like, they very much frame being trans as like a political act, which in some sense it is because trans people undergo like such oppression like it's pretty much existing as a trans person is political in that way however many trans people in fact probably all aren't doing it to make a political statement they're just trans because they're trans and that's really that should be where it ends 
And there is a kind of violence being conducted when trans people are like essentially being recruited as political objects to forward uh, a political um, a political project. So Halberstam is aware of these types of critiques of Judith Butler's work, like Jay Prosser's critique, and so Halberstam and Halberstam agrees. Like, this is to impose an identity and a narrative onto trans people, which is a violence in itself. So Prosser says that some trans people don't want it to be associated, um, or their identities to be associated with artifice, as Butler suggests, but with reality. So what Jay means here is that in Gender Trouble, Judith Butler says that trans people are transgressive because they exist purely in the realm of artifice. They aren't exhibiting a, an attachment to their physiology, to their bodies, and the ways in which society has inscribed those bodies with certain characteristics, where if you have a penis, you have to then put on blue clothes instead of pink clothes. You have to play with monster trucks and all of this, all of this nonsense. Uh, Judith Butler says that because trans people resist that, they are naturally being transgressive. And so Prosser says that many trans people, like I mentioned earlier, aren't just trying to exist in the domain of like artifice like to exist as like simulations of gender identity, they're trying to just fit in and just be real, like to be a man in the case of a trans man and that really being the end of it and the way it should be. And I bet like people, I don't know if anyone will listen to this in the future, but they're going to be like, oh, that guy was really like, he was still referring to trans people as like trans people and not just as a man or as a woman or as non-binary or anything else, which might happen in the future and i think that that would be great if there was just no we didn't care um other than just respecting people's pronouns but yeah i'd be i mean curious and maybe I'm, I'm gonna get ripped to shreds in the future for being problematic but that's i look forward to it because it's, that's how we develop academically and intellectually as a society so prosser says takes aim at butler for suggesting that trans people just exist at the realm of signs and artifice. And Prosser says that they actually, many trans people just want to align themselves with quote unquote reality as it is constructed in our society. And Halberstam is a little bit critical of this. Like Halberstam agrees that Butler maybe is too quick to just relegate trans identity to the realm of signs and artifice. And I have my own opinions on that, but you know, it would take too long to explain. But in any case, that's what's happening here. But Halberstam is also critical of Prosser for saying that there's this like domain of reality, this easily tangible, understandable domain of reality, which Butler also criticizes. This suggestion itself that there's this reality, this truth to gender in the form of one's sexuality, one's sex, one's biological sex is problematic in itself and reflects only societal, certain societal ideas about what is real and what is artificial. So Prosser advocates for, in the face of all of this, uh, Prosser advocates for self-narrativization for trans people to claim the realness of their identity through like journaling, through um, the production of art, from the production of, of anything else in order to capture their identity, to essentially reduce it to language so that it can be consumed and understood by others. So the, the effort here is to record one's own identity 
as a way to avoid other people creating that identity for you or imposing an identity onto you. So in the face of this, Halberstam stresses a distinction between, then this is one of those other, pro, this is something that's outdated. But Halberstam suggests that there is a distinction here between being transgender and being transsexual, where in the case of the autobiography that Prosser advocates, you know, of writing self-narrativization, writing one's own life so it's not imposed on you, of this, that uh, Halberstam suggests that there is transsexual autobiography and then there is transgender biography. So where the term transgender refuses the stability that the term transsexual may offer some folks, it embraces more of a hybrid possibilities for embodiment and identification. So here, to put it in my words, Halberstam is saying that there are people who are transsexual who are trying to fit their physical bodies to match the body they desire to be, which, yeah, and then there are transgender people who only do so at the level of artifice, like at the level of gender presentation that is easier to do. Now, we, this, this stuff is outdated. Like you don't hear the term transsexual very much uh, these days because it places a whole lot of significance still on bodies and what bodies mean in their attachment to gender identities. But in any case... Haberstam is suggesting that there can be both this transsexual autobiography and a transgender biography. Now, the way that Haberstam gets around the problematic associations with sexuality and with sexed bodies, in order to get around that, Haberstam suggests that because they are both made real through self-narrativization, through biography, through autobiography, this reveals that they are both open to mutation, to change, to flux. They are both reducible to writing, which is, you know, always, it's not real. Writing is a constructed form of communication. And because we communicate it through this artificial form of communication, it reveals that both sexuality and uh, gender identity are open to change and mutation. But nevertheless, you know, we still don't hear these terms used in this way uh and it's like you just mostly hear trans these days where gender and sexual are taken off the ends of them probably for this reason that it almost like just recapitulate it just um reinserts that distinction between sex and gender that judith butler very eloquently disabled or deconstructed back in the 90s but in any case in any case uh, the heterosexual world, through remembering and capturing, often approaches and depicts trans people in one of three possible ways, or a few of three possible ways. They are either framed through the project of stabilization, which is the effort to brand trans people as uh, strange, as pathological, and therefore in need of like managing. They can also be approached through a project of rationalization which is to find legitimate reasons for people breaking gender norms. For example, like money, like they might present themselves uh, in a certain way in order to work as a sex worker for whatever, like as the example uh, given in order to pass as another gender, or as we will talk about with Billy Tipton, 
perhaps uh, uh, someone who wanted to make it big in jazz industry and only decided to present themselves uh, himself as a man in order to do that, which we're going to criticize. Like we're not suggesting that that's true, but these are the, some of the reasons, uh, some of the ways that trans people are understood and rationalized within our world. And then finally, there's the project of trivialization, which is essentially to dismiss trans identities almost entirely. Like, oh, they're s such an aberration, so uncommon. Like, why even? doesn't matter at all. Like, let's just tell the story as though Brandon Tina wasn't trans, which is just to erase, like, the reason Brandon Tina was murdered. So that would be wrong as well. Now, each of these efforts, so just to repeat them quickly, there's the project of stabilization to call people like pathological to there's the project of rationalization, which is to find reasons why people might be trans, like in the case of money, wanting to acquire money. And then there's the project of trivialization, which is just to ignore trans people and trans identities. Now, each of these are efforts to manage trans people and to avoid engaging with in Haberstam's words, transgender lives in the glory of all their contradictions. Uh, but like, and this is one of those things that like, okay, why are we assuming this? Why are we associating these contradictions with trans people when like, we know very well that such contradictions also exist among heterosexual people. And this is something that Halberstam recognizes throughout the course of the text, but just like reading it without it being explained reads to me like, oh yeah, we know like trans people are those people where stuff doesn't line up, where it, they, they live in contradiction and they we assume a kind of a radicality because of that when like, I don't know, I think that that too quickly like even pathologizes trans people. But in any case, uh, we see that throughout the course of the text that Halberstam is very much aware of the ways that these contradictions are found among cisgender heteronormative people. So in the case of Billy Tipton, who was uh, a set who was found dead in 1989, like he collapsed in his home, I believe uh, he wasn't murdered and his family called the ambulance. Like he was, he died of old age, I think uh, perhaps a heart attack. He was, he was an older gentleman. Uh, but in this case, this happened in 1989, not in 1992, as the book here suggests. I don't know why that happened. Uh, but he was found, when the paramedics arrived, he was found to have breasts under his shirt. And he became the subject of much public speculation about the quote-unquote truth of his identity. And apparently his son and wife were unaware of this. Or at least his son was. Um, I'm not entirely sure about his wife, because there's all these differing accounts like as to who knew what and, and so on. So some claim that he was just trying to make it in the jazz scene, which was easier to do as a man, that he was deceptive and eccentric. So here we see the project of, pa of uh, tr rationalization at play here. You know, we just explain Billy Tipton's identity away by saying that, oh, it was just because of money, just wanted to get famous, wanted to get rich. And then we also see that when he's cast as being deceptive or eccentric, we see the project of stabilization at play. We attribute certain psychological factors to this to understand why he acted this way. He's just eccentric, he's just deceptive, in order not to reckon with the broader implications of trans people in our world. Like, what does that mean? And 
why are we not just welcoming these identities? So how does all this attention on trans people take away from considering the gender-conforming people they couple with? Like, ostensibly, Billy Tipton's wife didn't know. Uh, in the case of Brandon Tina, these were all straight women that we know of through the documentary who were dating Brandon. Like, what does that reveal to us about heterosexual identity? It reveals, for Halberstam, that it's not nearly as neat as we like to think. Like, desire and attraction are a lot more complicated. Now, if you're, like, of course this is the case. But the thing with this is that it is assuming that these are not then heterosexual relationships. Because as I read it, Brandon Tina dating a woman is a heterosexual relationship. But Haberstam's point is to say that given there was such hostility to trans people and this desire to maintain a steady connection between people's bodies and their gender identities, that they're like the fact that people's desires overcame that so that they could form bonds um, like between trans people and cis people to form heterosexual relationships there reveals the, really the fragility of heterosexual identity, which might signal to us why there are always these efforts to maintain it, to police it. You know, if you have a child who's uh, you assigned to be a boy, you bombard them with images of what it means to be a boy. You give them the army toys and you give them the guns and the monster trucks and everything. And that might be less a desire to just adhere to their secret wishes before they can even talk to you because they're a boy. It might be less that and more about desperately trying to make that be the case. To raise your child to conform to the idea of what you want them to be what identity you want them to have. So we don't do this to actually, you know, to meet them where they want to be, because we don't know what they want yet. And it's more about enforcing it onto them, which reveals just how fragile our heterosexual matrix really is, if we always need to be enforcing it out of fear that it will go away. So after Billy Tipton was found to be trans, there were so many efforts to explain this, right? To explain the truth of it. So there was Middlebrook's The Double Life of Billy Tipton that sought to find the truth of his identity. There was also Jackie Kay's novel called Trumpet that clearly that was clearly inspired by Billy Tipton's life and gives him, through fictional character, the last word on his identity. So we're going to see here that there are these differing perspectives and efforts to understand Billy Tipton's life, one in the form of like more documentary style, uh, one more in form of a, um, a novel, a fictional novel, but the fictional novel being closer to actually respecting Billy's life and not, you know, treating it like, uh, like buried treasure or like something that needs to be pillaged and understood. So these biographers should should really, like if anyone wants to do it properly, should capture the lives of the people they write as closely to how those people would have wanted their lives to be represented, which is not always the case because, you know, sometimes they're not around. But this is why you do interviews, you talk to people, like how did they identify in their lives, ask questions like that in order to best represent them. So in the case of Brandon Tina, who was murdered four years later, uh, not like in the in the text um 
the timing's all wrong uh, because Halberstam has the date of Billy Tipton's death wrong. But this happened four years later, and this drew much media attention with uh, also with documentaries, podcasts, and everything, essentially doing the same thing, like trying to find out the truth of Brandon's identity. So there's Denitia Smith's The Illusionist, which is a fictional story uh, that was... It was so clearly inspired by these events, even though she claimed it wasn't. Uh, but in any case, this is how the story goes. So this it involves a trans man named Dean Lilly who seduces unsuspecting women. So Smith both reduces Dean to engendering an in inadequate, lacking, and endangered masculinity, and the women that he seduces to being immature, vulnerable, completely dupable, like they're just being... Um, they're having the wool pulled down over their eyes. So they, what this did was it completely erased Brandon's complex relationship with his partners. Like just by saying that in the in uh, Smith's story that the protagonist Dean is just uh, a fractured man trying to embrace uh, an inadequate and lacking uh, identity or masculinity and the women that he seduced as being just gullible, vulnerable. So these women are framed in the text and elsewhere as naive to erase their own non-normative attachments and relations, because that'd be too difficult to confront. It would call into question the foundations of our heterosexual matrix. And this also served to erase the threat that Brandon posed to other heteromasculine cis men. And this produced much animosity. Like, why is it that Brandon is having so much success with women when he doesn't comply with proper gender norms and even <laughs> i mean i don't like talking about my life uh here but even the other day i was in the presence of someone who made this claim they were like there's this guy who's was successful at getting all these women and he didn't even play sports <laughs> it's like you have no idea what people are attracted to like it's it's amazing but this is the idea that the most attractive men are like the big muscly men but this is only the, this is what men are attracted to. This is what men think women are attracted to. So men are attracted to other big bustling men, uh, whereas women, I'm, I'm being general here, uh, are not so attracted to that. They're attracted to so many, there's so many other things to be attracted to. So Brandon's masculinity was so threatening that he was assaulted by two of his friends in his life before he was murdered when they learned he was trans and they would eventually go on to kill him and two of his friends uh, just a couple of weeks later. So Brandon like injured so much violence. It's really disgusting. So another account by uh, John Dunn suggests that Brandon was to blame and that his killers were victims of working class life. So John Dunn wrote this piece uh, professing his, I don't know, his opinion, his musings in in a public forum, which is really easy to do because if you confront the mediocrity that is John Dunn, you know that to be able to have a space to write for mass audiences doesn't require a whole lot of intelligence. So for John and many other people, they believe that Brandon's death, uh, in Brandon's death, his gender is merely a personal crisis, an opportunity for self-indulgence, but class, in this case, is the real prison. So John, in all his ding-dong wisdom, says that, oh, Brandon was essentially to blame for this because of his gender identity. 
whereas the white supremacist is a victim because of his class background, even though Brandon's from the same kind of poor class background, uninjured so much abuse, but Brandon is not given the same kind of sympathy precisely because he's trans. And so this was a way by which to validate the oppressors, to validate the perpetrators, who one of which was a white supremacist, while victimizing or while um, stigmatizing or while blaming the victims. Words, David, words. Now, Halberstam adds on to this that for the women who were attracted to Brandon, Halberstam suggests that his attention was worth more to them than credit cards and money in the bank. And so he earned the undying hate of the men that he supplanted because these men believed that these women just wanted uh, to have like, to follow the heteronormative script of, you know, marry someone with a job, start having kids, blah, blah, blah. These women didn't necessarily adhere to that. And this was a problem for the these other men, these one-dimensional men who were like, this is all people want. They want muscles, muscle man, masculine man. And that's, that's the only determining factor of attraction. I'm being rude, but it's just sometimes funny. So we, we must not lose the fact here, or we must not lose the complexity of Brandon's life and Billy's for that matter. We can't lose it to, to biography and sentimental remembrance that often gets rid of all of the complexities of their lives in order to commodify them, to sell like ticket sales. And that puts us here into chapter four, titled The Transgender Look, where we're going to look at the film Boys Don't Cry, which if you haven't seen, it's okay. It's not necessary. I'm going to explain it in some detail so you know what's going on. But it essentially is just about Brandon's life, played by Hilary Swank, which is a problem for like having uh, a cis woman play a trans man. What that communicates is that trans identity is not really real and that it's just something someone can put on in a film, which mirrors in some respects the ways, uh, those instances in which able-bodied people, like it's not the same, of course, but able-bodied people are cast to play disabled people, which, you know, means that there are fewer roles for disabled people to acquire in Hollywood and other film industries. And it just essentially makes a mockery of being disabled, like treating it as though something someone can just put on, like, ha ha ha, I'm going to make millions off of this movie playing, uh, playing a disabled person while not actually casting a disabled person. So before jumping into the film Boys Don't Cry, it's important to look at 20th century and 21st century films and the representation of trans people in those films or the transgender look, creation of films by trans people as well. So in the late 20th century, films began to feature more instances of body transformation with films like Terminator 2, The Matrix, uh, and in, well, interestingly, Halbers now mentions The Matrix, and we know now it being a trans allegory, uh, which I don't think Halbers would have known at the time. I don't think. Just don't quote me on that. I don't think that that was. The, I don't think they uh, Jack had had a conversation with the Wachowskis and they'd said this then. But maybe. In any case, it's just interesting that uh, Halbers uses this example because it does really adhere to. Um, trans uh, identities and really gives a tale about that, according to the Wachowskis. 
But there are so many other films that you know we can look at here. I I immediately think of Crash, David Cronenberg's Crash. If you haven't seen it, in which people like the film is about people crashing cars and getting sexually aroused because of it. And there's this blending of body and machine in this film. Also, like The Fly. I'm just drawn to Cronenberg when thinking about this. But here, Halberstam's talking like with Terminator Two, The Matrix. He's talking about shape shifting and identity morphing, which has been nowhere more powerfully realized recently than in transgender film. So, uh, for example, The Crying Game, Boys Don't Cry, as we'll talk about more. Uh, these were films that essentially started to blur the distinction between, you know, being a man, being a woman, being any other categories and demonstrating that there were different possibilities to actually conduct one's own life. How do you present yourself? How do you exist in the world? And so on. And we'll also talk about the film um, by hook or by crook. So what we're going to do here is we're going to go through each of these films. We're going to go through Crying Game, uh, The Crying Game, Boys Don't Cry, and then hook, hook or by, by hook or by crook. And what we're going to show is that they elevate in terms of trans representation and queer representation where the first one the crying game does it very poorly boys don't cry tries but does it quite poorly and then by hook or by crook is an example of a film that captures queer identity and subcultural lives in a way that's quite respectful partly because it's actually made and cast uh trans people so it's not you know just treating trans people as and queer people as just being like uh, identities to put on by non-trans or non-queer actors. So trans films appear to embrace total flexibility, but are also quite rigid in the types of recognition that they uphold. So the trans characters always must quote unquote fail at passing. They must also it must also always be known that they're trans. And so how do you do that on screen unless you also perform the failures of being trans? Like I'm not I don't think that they're failures, but in this context, referring to uh, trans identity as being either a pass or fail situation, which is how they are often looked at from audience and critics. And this is important so that the audience knows exactly what the film is about uh, and where the film is going to go. Because if there's a trans character, then you know it's, oh, it's going to be about that. Like it can't just be a trans character who's trans or just the gender they're presenting at, and that be the end of the story. Transness is then made hyper-visual in these settings, but it's important to juxtapose this or to compare this with the societal invisibility of being trans, having very little political power, having very little economic power, having very little uh, other presence in film uh, production and music production, at least acquiring the same resources that heterosexual cis people can easily acquire. So there's both a hyper-visuality here, hyper-visibility, and also an invisibility, which is very, very difficult to uh, engage with. So starting with Crying Games, I was calling it Crying Game, Crying Games. This is a film that concerns a number of different uh, erotic triangles situated within the tense political landscape of the English occupation of Northern Ireland. So this is a film of colonialism in a lot of cases where you have the British occupying Ireland because of all the civil unrest in Ireland and Ireland not being attached to the crown and everything like that. But the film 
which features a uh, trans character and queer politics and subcultural <laughs> subcultures, is also oddly hostile to the Irish and sympathetic to the English occupiers. So the IRA is constructed as a rigid political force, and the trans character Dill, who is reduced to her identity, is framed as equally rigid in her gender identity. So it's like really interesting because the queer people in the film, so Dill, trans uh, woman, is seen as being like uptight, is seen as just like wanting to be reduced to her own identity and leaving little room for possibility for any alternative. Now, similarly, in, in, at least in distinction with uh, her like her male co-star, cis male co-star, who's seen as being like laid back and easygoing and cool. Uh, she's seen as being this rigid, oppressive force. Similarly, the Irish are depicted as being like backwards, like being oppressive, being rigid, whereas the British colonizers are like, oh, it's all good. Like, you know, we're, we're, we're easy to work with. We're flexible. And so the white man at the center of both the political conflict and the romance is depicted by contrast as being mobile, as being welcoming, which is only really possible by the privilege that he experiences. Like, yeah, that's great, but you never have your, your gender identity questioned. You are never living in a world in which you are not welcomed by virtue of who you are. So, of course, you have an easier time being this jovial, uh, connected person who's cool and collected. Like, of course. Now, in the course of the film, Dill's identity is kept a secret. But when the truth, the quote-unquote truth, is revealed, the film includes a number of moments illustrating the turn to her quote-unquote real biological self. The man cuts her hair in one instance, making her hair presentation like a boy's. So she's a, being a trans woman, and her tears are at one point used to wipe the makeup from her face. And these moments are like ways to return her to her truth as uh, someone assigned as a boy in the beginning of their life. So Dill is only a pawn in a narrative that centers white men and white men's problems, white hetero cis men and their problems. So similarly, or at least it will be similar, but at first it might seem that a film like Boys Don't Cry about Brandon Tina's life uh, gives more space to trans identity and to queerness. So it might look like it, but it only does so while upholding heterosis identities and erasing Brandon's perspective. So throughout the course of the film, Brandon is just like always reacting to things, is always victim to things, denying him agency in this film with the exception of a short speech after he has died, after he has been murdered, of a letter, of him narrating a letter he'd written, um, which is like one of the only moments he's given a voice. Similarly to an example of um, mentioned earlier, Trumpet, in the case of Billy Tipton, that was about, uh, that featured a similar type of narrative toward the end of the victim, or the victim of the dead person uh, speaking. It was a way to give them a voice. So in the face of this, like denying a voice to Brandon in the film about Brandon, what sense can we make of his treatment by the filmmakers where reflecting on Laura Mulvey's critique of the male gaze, Halberstam suggests that Boys Don't Cry is unable to construct and respond with a proper trans gaze. So 
all that happens is that Brandon is reduced. He's seen through not really a male gaze, but a heteronormative gaze that tries to make sense of him, tries to police and code him. Whereas a trans gaze would leave room for what it means to be trans and to exemplify and demonstrate those identities. So any effort by the film to respect Brandon as Brandon is abandoned following his being assaulted um, before he's eventually murdered. So what happens is that he's assaulted, suspected by two of his friends for being not who he says he is, and he's assaulted. And after this moment, he is essentially feminized, where the person who plays him, Hilary Swank, like suddenly takes on a very feminine quality, at least in his interactions with one of his girlfriends, with his girlfriend, uh, Lana. So he and Lana have sex, and it is now framed very much like a lesbian sex scene, not in their previous encounters, sexual encounters, as being framed heterosexually. So it's almost like in the assault, Brandon had to then revert to his natural true identity, which, like, it's just the way that the film depicts this, which is problematic. What this does is it make it seem as though his masculine identity was fake and his feminine identity was real. And also, not to mention the fact that Philip, uh, Brandon's friend, um, his disabled black friend, was erased from the film. Uh, and th this was also a black man who was dating a white woman, which raises a number of other considerations, given that he was murdered by a white supremacist and was seen as being almost as threatening as Brandon to masculinity, to white male masculinity. So while this movie is leagues above crying games in its representation of trans people like it's still super problematic uh it's like way below a film like by hook or by crook that features two trans characters created like who also directed it created it and the intimate bonds uh and their queer identities so this is uh played by the characters are shy and valentine who was were played by doge and howard or harry doge or harry dodge and silas howard who created the film and starred in it, who are actually two trans people. Now, this film is about, essentially, by hook or by crook, refers to, like, going to any extent to earn a buck. And so they comically try to, like, rob a store. They they navigate all of these subcultural communities in the West. I think it's in San Francisco. And what we see is, like, an exposure to... A different way of living in the world not to um, defang that alternative or not to reduce it to being an aberration in our otherwise normal world but to really make it out to seem like this is very much people's lives who exist in these subcultures and giving a space to present that, that lie th those lives which is what Haberstam really appreciates in this film so even their queer identities, while it is apparent, is not like part of the film at all. The film is just about two people living their lives. And that doesn't comply with, you know, the standard form. And so this movie hasn't been given a lot of attention by like critics and commentators, at least in relationship to other films. But this is very much deliberate, where uh, Harry Dodge and Silas Howard wanted the fact that they happen to be queer to be purposefully off the point. Like it wasn't going to be the focus of the movie. 
So they occupy queer subcultural spaces on the West Coast, and so their identities aren't aberrations. Like it's very much, they're very much one with the spaces that they occupy, which calls into attention calls to attention our focus on space and time and our assumptions about how they are to be constructed, how they are they are to unfold. So the film then represents a utopian vision of a world of subcultural possibilities. These are postmodern possibilities for uh, Halberstam in exemplifying different ways of experiencing the world, of living in the world that don't comply with the standard uh, rhythmic scripts of life. And yeah, that'll close off chapter four next time. We're going to look at chapter five alone, I think. Yeah, I think I'm just going to look at chapter five next time titled Technotopias, representing transgender bodies in contemporary art. And yeah, if you like what I did, you know, you could like, share, subscribe, leave a review. If there's anything I got wrong, I'd love to hear about it. Anything I excluded, I'd love to hear about it. And yeah, on that note, catch you next time. Take care.